0: Right, good, good, good. Everybody doing okay? Yeah. All right, fantastic. Well, I want to say it is good to be back with you after a couple of weeks' absence. And so it's good to be together. And uh, not only that, I'm glad to be uh, this morning jumping back into our study series that we began some weeks ago, having now taken a little bit of a break from it, um, where we've been studying through this fantastic book written by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, former Uh, Chief Rabbi of Britain, Uh, Rabbi Sachs passed away last year. Uh, This is a fantastic and meaningful and important book that he wrote um, some years ago. And uh, so I'm happy to be studying it together uh, with you. The book is entitled Not in God's Name. Um, The subtitle of the book is Confronting Religious Violence. And that tells you about what you need to know, about all that you need to know about the theme of this book but in the um, introductory of the book he sets up really the theme of the book by asking this question which turns out to be really kind of the orbit point for uh, the entire book and it's basically this how is it that people can hate in the name of the God of love commit cruelty in the name of the God of compassion Practice violence in the name of the God of peace. Seek revenge in the name of the God of forgiveness. And how is it ultimately that people can kill in the name of the God of life? These are questions that are simple enough to ask, right? Um, And even the the rhetorical implication of surely it's not possible that someone could arrive at that place. Um, and yet, it's also, isn't it, too often true that we find exactly that—not um, only in the world in the past and other places, at other times, but also in the world today, in various places around the world, even this very moment, um, including even here uh, for us in the U.S. Where you know, this study is not about violence in particular, although that may be a, a worthwhile study. This is about religious violence, particularly violence that is um, perhaps even motivated by one's religion, but certainly um, violence that is not curtailed or bridled by one's religion or understanding uh, of religion. So in the first half of our study some weeks ago, we looked at a series of factors that contribute to religious violence, but mostly from a purely sociological perspective perspective, right? We looked at our tendency toward groupishness, that is, uh, we live and thrive in groups, compulsively so, uh, and in doing so, we have this what's called an in-group bias, where we tend to uh, over-elevate and overestimate members of our in-group, and then in contrast, we tend to underestimate, vilify members of our out-group. We looked at what Rabbi Sachs calls altruistic evil, where a person could come to a point where where we, they, could actually commit acts of harm or violence against others while believing, so to speak, that we're doing the world a favor in doing so. Altruistic evil. We looked at ideas like splitting and projection and dehumanization in which we, we clear the way, morally speaking, uh, for committing vax, acts of violence uh, by reducing the target population to something less than human. Human. And then we brought all that to a real fine focal point by looking at mimesis, which is just a fancy word that just means imitation, what uh, sociologist René Girard calls mimetic desire as the key spark in the chain reaction toward violence. Mimesis, again, is just a fancy word for imitation. The, The phrase mimetic desire simply means that we desire what someone else has simply because someone else has it right? So uh, in other words, according to mimetic theory, um, our desires are actually rooted in the imitation of others. It starts out in the, you know, in the nursery school room, I want little Johnny's truck simply because little Johnny has it and appears to enjoy it. And therefore, I want little Johnny's truck. This is mimesis or mimetic desire. And of course, the most compressed environment, for the emergence of mimetic desire is among siblings. And so, from these observations, we recognize that a central element of violence in general and of religious violence in particular is sibling rivalry. And so, when you come to that observation, at that point, right, there's all these very human, psychological, sociological, Dynamics that kind of boil down eventually to this notion of sibling rivalry as a spark for much competition, jealousy, and in eventually violence. With all that in mind, we now turn to the biblical text itself, the biblical story itself, and lo and behold, wouldn't you know that what we find in the Genesis narrative is a series of stories that are jam-packed with sibling rivalry. And so today, we're going to begin a study of a series of these stories. The first story that we're going to look at this morning is the first story of sibling rivalry in Abraham's family. Arguably, it's not the first story of sibling rivalry in the Bible. We'll talk about that one at another time. But this is the first story of sibling rivalry (coughs) in Abraham's family. When it comes to the first generational passing of the Abraham covenant from the generation of Abraham to the next generation. The first instance of that generational crossing we find none other than sibling rivalry and a rich example of it as well as we'll see. Um, We will look at over the next few weeks several more of these narratives of sibling rivalry but this one is first. The story is of course the story of Ishmael and Isaac, two sons of Abraham. You 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 may remember the story. I'll try to summarize it. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, but time passes and time passes and time passes and still Abraham has no children and by this time he is very old. And so Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes up with an idea. She says, <clears throat> maybe the way that Abraham will have children uh, is by my Egyptian handmaid here, Hagar. And so, Sarah proposes this to Abraham, essentially offering Hagar to her husband as a surrogate mother. And this situation is, of course, packed with potential conflict in any age, whether ancient or modern. Um, and so Hagar does indeed conceive. And let's just say that Hagar's pregnancy changes the tone of the relationship between Hagar and her mistress Sarah. And it's it's reasonable to understand. We can perfectly understand this, right? All of a sudden, Hagar is, conceives and is pregnant, and Sarah is still without children. This is a very difficult, emotionally vulnerable situation between These two women and you could have seen this rivalry coming from a mile away right as soon as the idea comes off of sarah's lips so sarah becomes jealous and actually blames abraham for the whole deal you know that's a we'll get to that in just a moment um and and i think significantly abraham corresponds with uncharacteristic ambivalence in the in the narrative basically you know do what you want to do you know says to sarah do what you know what you want to do treat her as you please and so it says that Sarah begins to treat Hagar harshly. It actually uses the word afflicted, that Sarah afflicted Hagar. Um, and so much so, however we interpret it, and we're going to talk about some all this in detail, but however you interpret it, it was harsh enough upon Hagar that Hagar took it upon herself to run away uh, and to flee the situation. I'm getting away from the Abrahams. They are a mean bunch, right? So Hagar flees into Uh, the desert and there an angel of the Lord appears to her and tells her to go back and submit to Sarah and oh by the way you are going to have a son and oh by the way I'm going to make him into a great nation and oh by the way you are to name him Ishmael and so Sarah returns. I mean Hagar returns she gives birth to a son and Abraham follows through and names the son Ishmael about Fifteen years later, give or take, best we can tell, the Lord appears to Abraham again and reaffirms the covenant to Abraham and once again says, you're going to have a child through Sarah. And at this point, I mean, Sarah is way past menopause. Abraham is, what, 99 years old? You know, and and so he falls on his face and he laughs about this, you know, and actually in that moment, it is significant um, that Abraham says to to the Lord, uh, why can't Ishmael just carry the covenant. I mean, he's here. We've done that. We're seeing we have an Ishmael. That's why can't he carry the covenant? And but the Lord insists, no, you're to have a son through Sarah, and this son will carry the covenant forward. And so Sarah does give birth uh to a son. They name him Isaac. And when it comes time for Isaac to be weaned, however many years or months you would put on that, um Abraham decides to throw a party to mark this milestone in Isaac's life. And it says in the account that during the festivities to celebrate Isaac's weaning, it says that Sarah notices Ishmael mocking. That's the way it's usually translated in English. We'll come back to that. But regardless, Sarah, whatever she saw, she saw. And she was offended. And so yet again, and I say again, she insists that Hagar and her son Ishmael be sent away. And I say it again, even though the first instance was arguably Hagar's own volition. And yet indirectly, she was propelled away by Sarah's harsh treatment. And so here overtly, Sarah insists that Hagar is sent away. And here we get a different tone that Abraham was very disturbed by this insistence by his wife and nevertheless he follows through on what she demands and so the next morning Abraham gets up and he gives Hagar some bread and some water and sends Hagar and young Ishmael away the pair traveling in the desert of course quickly run out of food and water it becomes clear to Hagar that her young son Ishmael is going to die and so she lays him down underneath a shrub for a little bit of shade as he cries out in misery at the verge of on the verge of death and she goes some distance away about a bow shot away because she doesn't want to watch her own son die and it says that she lifts up her face and she's just crying out in bitter desperation just then the angel of the lord appears once again to Hagar and says i've heard your cry i've heard Ishmael's cry go and pick him up and look just over there there's a well of water so the two of them drink and they're revived And refreshed, and it says that God was with the young man, and he grew up and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got him a wife from Egypt. End of story. Or is it? What we have here, everybody, and this is where we're going to turn the corner and look again. What we have here is an instance of a phenomenon that occurs frequently in the Bible, actually. And it goes by, different scholars will refer to this with different terminology. Um, Some might call it narrative and counter-narrative. Theologian Walter Brueggemann, he refers to this as testimony and counter-testimony. Either way, the idea is the same, and it's basically this, that oftentimes in Scripture, we encounter a narrative, a story, and on the surface, or or let's just say on the first reading, the narrative tells one story, and yet just beneath the surface, there's a story that's hinted at, or sometimes we might say, hiding in plain sight, that tells a different story altogether. Narrative, counter narrative, testimony, counter testimony. On the surface, what we have here could be called a, a classic, well, I guess it's classic now because there's several of these in, in the Bible. Uh, a displacement narrative in which the younger generation comes along and displaces the older generation from their presumed place of privilege in the family right both in ancient times uh, and in modern times um, there is this presumption for perhaps the firstborn certainly this would be true uh, of the firstborn male in most instances that there is a presumption of ascendancy in the family for the firstborn or again certainly the firstborn male that's, that's the norm. That's the expected thing, both in ancient times and in modern times, right? That's how, that's how Europe, for example, maintained the aristocracy because all of the family's wealth, generation after generation, went to the firstborn in the family. And So that's how, uh, through that period of time, uh, the Europeans maintained the, the aristocratic class. And it's actually think, something interesting in American history. When the Europeans came over to America to form our society, they decided to do away with that practice. Intentionally so. It was a very egalitarian uh, idea to no longer practice uh, that kind of pattern. Well, so, so, so what we have here in the story of Isaac and Ishmael, we're going to see the same thing with, with Esau and Jacob, even with Joseph and his brothers. There, this is a displacement narrative where the younger comes along and takes ascendancy uh, over against the expected norm of the firstborn uh, having that place said another way, the surface narrative of this story could be stated like this. Isaac chosen, Ishmael is not, right? Isaac receives the covenant, Ishmael does not. It's simple. It's cut and dry. Isaac is the favored one, Ishmael is the rejected one. Isaac is the loved and embraced one, and Ishmael is the outcast. It's just simple. It's just a cut-and-dried displacement narrative, right? And by the way, let's just kind of take a pause here and realize that this reading, this particular reading of this story, uh, is ground zero for the now generational conflict among Jews, Christians, and Muslims, right? Um, Both throughout history and still to this day. You will recall, that the Apostle Paul, in his own writings to the, early, uh, to the early Christians, he uses this story and turns it around yet again into a brand new displacement narrative where he says, oh, yes, and you got to understand, the Jewish people, they are analogous to Hagar and Ishmael, and we, the Christians, we are analogous to Sarah and Isaac. So once again, Paul's doing the same thing. He's saying now the younger religion, Christianity, has come along and displaced the older religion of Judaism, Right? Taking the same story and using it that way. Uh, And then, shortly after the time of Paul, what does Islam come along and do? Once again, they say, oh no, the only, reason those, the only reason the Jews think that Isaac was the chosen one is because they corrupted the text. In fact, it was Ishmael who was the chosen one, and we, uh, the followers of Islam, we, are, uh, we inherit from Ishmael, and therefore we are actually the chosen ones. And so now, we, now again, the younger religion, Islam, has come along and displaced both older religions, Christianity and Judaism. And so... The conflict, the rivalry has expanded through the centuries and around the world ever since. So it begs the question, why has this narrative so frequently been used in this way? It's because this narrative has been read as this simple displacement narrative. One chosen, the other rejected. But this takeaway only comes from this initial, superficial reading of the story. When you look more closely, though, when you read alertly and with attention to the details, what you see in this story is an entirely different story altogether that begins to emerge. There is a counter-narrative just beneath the surface uh, that really... uh, well, counters the narrative of the superficial surface narrative. It's as if the biblical writers hid a treasure trove for us in plain sight, or maybe just beneath the surface of the story. So what we're going to do this morning for the next few minutes is look at several of the clues along the way in this treasure hunt for a better story, a richer story, uh, a fuller story, okay? So the first thing to notice, and I think you have notes, if not, maybe make some notes. Uh, We want to notice the emphasis in this story upon God's blessing of Ishmael. It's a detail that's right in front of us, but way too easy to overlook. Four times, no less, the narrative goes out of its way to uh, emphasize God's blessing upon Ishmael. Ishmael. The first instance we'll look at uh, is what the angel says to Hagar while she's pregnant with Ishmael. The angel says to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Does anybody recognize that language? Greatly multiply your descendants too many to count? That sounds a little bit like what God said to Abraham, doesn't it? Sounds a whole lot like it, in fact. Exactly what God said to Abraham on one or more occasions um here's another example genesis 17 verse 20 as for ishmael i that's god speaking i have heard you behold i will bless him this is this is uh god speaking to uh, abraham in this instance uh i've heard you i will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly he shall become the father of 12 princes and i will make him a great nation again does that language sound familiar Twelve princes? Yeah, absolutely. That cues our minds instantly to uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And I will make him a great nation. And yet this is spoken regarding Ishmael. Uh, Genesis 21, God says to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad. This is upon the occasion of the second sending away of Hagar, uh, first sending away of Ishmael. Well, the first time I guess he was in utero. Anyway, details. Okay. So Genesis 21, God said to him, to Abraham, don't be distressed because of the lad and your maid, Hagar. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And of the son of the maid, (coughs) I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. Notice that through all of this, time and time again, we, the readers, are reminded when we Are alert to it we are reminded that god's blessing rests upon ishmael upon his descendants and that ishmael is in fact and always shall be a son of abraham that never changes through all of this again genesis 21 uh verse 17 god heard the lad crying this is when uh hagar is desperate and near death as is ishmael in the desert god heard the lad crying Uh, And the, let's see, God heard the lad crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. And God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer taking all these together it's important for us to notice a few things number one god does not never does god reject hagar never does god reject ishmael to the contrary the actual narrative says that god actually intervened to save them both there is no rejection of these two by god secondly god repeats here as we <coughs> as we already mentioned God repeats here to Hagar what he also said to Abraham that he will make Ishmael this time into a great nation. Thirdly, this may escape our notice, uh, but the name Ishmael means God has heard. That's what Ishmael means. That is, God heard both Hagar's bitter cry of desperation that resulted first from Sarah's affliction and then later from near. Uh, starvation in the desert and God heard Ishmael's cry of desperation there in the desert. And again, God not only heard them but he also intervened to save them and to pronounce a blessing upon them. Taken all together then, we can already see just so far that what we have here is not a simple story of one chosen the other rejected. That's not what this story is at all. To be sure, Isaac is chosen by God for the specific responsibility of carrying forward the Abraham covenant. But, it, but at the same time, Ishmael is not rejected by God, nor is Ishmael rejected by his father, Abraham. The second bit to notice in this story, and we'll just focus finally uh, on Sarah, but we, you could do this analysis on other characters uh, in the story as well. But we're going to focus on how this story characterizes Sarah. Um, In the first instance, when when the issue emerges that, let's just say, the tone changes between Sarah and Hagar when, when Hagar conceives, Sarah's initial response is to blame the whole thing on Abraham, which there's nothing in the story that would indicate that this is Abraham's fault. It was Sarah's idea. To to create this surrogate mother deal, right? And yet when when things kind of you know feel a little bit awkward, or maybe Sarah, Sarah suddenly feels like Hagar's looking down on her, or at least it's not looking up to her anymore, right? So we don't know, but you know, the dynamic changes. And Sarah's reaction is to blame Abraham. Well, it wasn't his fault, right? Secondly, it is significant, uh in chapter 16, <clears throat> verse 6. Uh, this is, what English translation do we have here? New American Standard. I don't know. You can pick one. But um, this has that Sarah treated Hagar harshly. Uh, Other English translations use the word afflicted. And it is significant in the Hebrew. The word that's used there in Genesis chapter 16, verse 6, is the word that's translated afflicted later in the narrative. And the context is how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites and afflicted them. It's the same word, that Sarah afflicted Hagar. And later in the story, the Egyptians will afflict the Israelites. Let's just pause for that just a moment and remember that Hagar was Egyptian. There is a hint here That years later, when the descendants of Abraham will be enslaved and afflicted by the Egyptians, that this will be a mirror of the image of the affliction that we see here caused by Sarah against the Egyptian Hagar. Does everybody see that? But regardless of how we interpret the word, what we know is, is that Sarah's treatment of Hagar was sufficiently harsh that Hagar took it upon herself. She'd rather be in the desert, you know, vulnerable, than be subject to this harsh treatment by Sarah. And then the next bit, as we're just looking um, at Sarah, this is later in chapter 21, at the second sending away of Hagar. Sarah says to Abraham, send this servant away with her son. This servant's son won't share the inheritance with my son. Earlier when Sarah had proposed the idea of Hagar as a surrogate mother to Abraham, in that instance, uh, Sarah referred to Hagar as her handmaid. Now, she's just a slave woman. And Sarah even refuses to use not only her name, Sarah refuses to even refer to Ishmael by name. Ishmael is simply the slave woman's son. So, we have this picture of Sarah that is emerging. And it is a very unsympathetic portrayal of Sarah. Here's, here's the last one. Um, this is from chapter 21, verse 8, backing up a little bit. at What was it at the weaning party that triggered Sarah's response so harsh against Ishmael and Hagar? Here's, here's how it reads uh, from the New American Standard. It says, The child grew, that's Isaac. Grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. If you're taking notes, you can circle that word mocking. Notice it from the uh, contemporary English Bible. Sarah saw Hagar's son laughing. What's going on here? What's going on in translation? Well, Literally, in the Hebrew, the word there is laughing. The common English Bible actually gets it right. That Ishmael, during the weaning party, during Isaac's weaning party, Ishmael was laughing. Now, it raises the question what does laughter mean? And both in our culture and in other cultures, ancient cultures, there is a range of meaning that laughter can take on, right? We can laugh when we're joyful. We can laugh when we're celebrating a great victory. We can laugh, as, in, as is the case in this very story, we can laugh when we're in disbelief. God makes a promise to Abraham, who's old, and makes a promise to Sarah, who's old and way past menopause, and in both instances they laugh, Ha, 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 you're crazy. Right? We can laugh uh, in, in a mocking kind of thing, right? Make, looking at somebody, <laughs> you know, we can laugh in a mocking kind of thing. Uh, There's even in Scripture and in life, um, there's laughter in a romantic sense where laughter can mean acting familiarly, right, Right? like two lovers, you know, giggling, laughing. So there's a whole range of meaning for what it could mean to laugh. Here's, Here's why that matters. These biblical storytellers are brilliant. They don't answer the question for us, what kind of laughter was Ishmael engaged in? It just says, all it says is that Sarah noticed Ishmael laughing during Isaac's weaning party. And so the biblical writers leave this question open for us, which is very important, actually. Uh, In other words, what kind of laughter was it for Ishmael? Uh, Or we could say it this way. Was Sarah right to be offended? Ishmael was laughing in mockery toward his younger half-brother Isaac? Or was Sarah wrong to take offense? Ishmael was joyfully taking part in the celebration of this of his younger half-brother's milestone in life. Was Sarah right or was Sarah wrong? The text itself actually doesn't answer the question for us. And I would add to that that Bible translators who do answer that question for us are mistaken. It's important to leave the ambiguity there. Here's what 13th century Spanish rabbi Nachmanides wrote about this, taking all this together. He says, Our mother Sarah transgressed by this affliction, and Abraham did likewise by permitting her to do so. And so God heard Hagar's affliction and gave her a son who would be a wild donkey of a man to afflict the seed of Abraham and Sarah with all kinds of affliction. Now, of course, this 13th century Spanish rabbi would have lived by now through generations of persecution against and among uh, Muslims and Jews by this time. And he is attempting here, amazingly, he is attempting to explain all of this Now, you know, generations, many generations, over a millennia of uh, inter-family strife, attempting to explain all that, by this transgression at the root of it, Sarah's transgression against Hagar as the root of all of this competition. Again, putting all that together, the picture of Sarah in this story is so... Uh, um, undesirable. It's not pretty. <laughs> it's it's ugh, you know that kind of picture. And again, that's another clue for us. Wait a minute. What story is being told here? I mean, because again, uh, back to the surface narrative, Sarah and Isaac are the heroes of the story. I mean, after all, they're the they're the religious plus ones, right? They're the ones that are chosen. They're the they're the line through which the Abraham covenant. Uh, we'll continue. Can it just be that simple, to say the biblical writers? No, it's not that simple. And they give us this rich and albeit unflattering portrait of Sarah, the matriarch, arguably, the matriarch of the covenant line. And the portrait of her is entirely unsympathetic. Third clue in this treasure hunt for a deeper, richer, better narrative is what we could call, for lack of a better heading, what we could call the emotional tone of the Hagar-Ishmael story. And to really get at the uh, the richness of this, it's important just to say as a general statement, and as soon as I say this, like, you'll get it. But in general, it's been noted again and again and again that in general, the biblical narrative, and here we're thinking of Genesis in particular, um, is very sparse with its use of words and especially sparse in its use of describing the emotional inner world of the characters involved in the biblical narrative, right? Like that's a general characteristic of biblical prose, okay? Like um, an example, a classic example, maybe the best example, would be the story of what's called the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, when God gives I- Abraham the instructions to sacrifice his son Isaac I mean I I you know again it's a very disturbing story but I would ask you later to go back and read it there's no well, I mean I mean there's no, Abraham okay I'm going to do it I mean he Abraham says two words in the entire story it's actually one word he says it twice it's translated into English as three words here I am God speaks to Abraham here am I gives a command sacrifice your son there's no what what kind of God are you this is grotesque I mean there's nothing there's just Take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and sacrifice. And Abraham just gets up and he gathers the wood. He gets the donkey. He gets Isaac. He gets the knife, and they travel up the hill. He makes the you know lays Isaac down, uh, raises the knife, and then God intervenes, calls out to his name Abraham, and Abraham says that one word once again: "Here I am." There is no zero emotion in that story. No, no inner world dynamic, no fretting, no anguish, no, none of the things that you would expect to be only natural in that kind of disturbing uh, setting. Okay, that's more typical of biblical prose. In contrast, in this Hagar-Ishmael story, we get lots and lots of very rare inner world emotional descriptive aspects throughout the story. Beginning again with the second sending away of Hagar, uh, we begin with a rare glimpse into the inner world of Abraham himself. Genesis 21 verse 11, it says that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. This is when Sarah is throwing a conniption because of the way she interpreted Ishmael's laughter and insists that Hagar be sent away, and the biblical writers want us to know that Abraham was disturbed greatly by this. Why? Because of his son, because he loved Ishmael. That's why, and we're told that. And then secondly, and again along the same lines, in the, I guess we'll call it the climactic moment of the story of Hagar and Ishmael after they had in fact been sent away, add into the desert, and by now they're run out of food and run out of water. Um, just, I'll just read that passage again at length and just listen to um, the emotional tonality that's in the story. Um, when the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him, lifted up her voice, and wept. God heard the lad crying. It was young Ishmael, starving, parched, thirsty, laying under a bush, crying. God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do, Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is and so again on the surface of it <coughs> Isaac is the hero of this story he's the one chosen to bear the covenant but our sympathies <coughs> are not drawn to Isaac nor to Sarah we, we don't hear anything from Isaac in this story um, but instead yet again these storytellers are going out of their way to draw us in to Hagar and Ishmael. There is no doubt left to our minds that Abraham very much loves his son, Ishmael, and there is no doubt that God, too, loves Ishmael and has blessed Ishmael with a destiny of his very own. Critically important is to understand That never in this story is Ishmael vilified by the biblical writers. The only piece of the story that could potentially in any way be taken to negatively portray Ishmael, that Ishmael was laughing during Isaac's weaning ceremony, is again left open to debate. Perhaps he was just celebrating in this great milestone in his younger half-brother's life. That is left open to us in the text. Ishmael is never vilified by the biblical writers. Ishmael is never rejected by God, nor is he rejected by his father, Abraham. All of this, back again to the context of our study um, from from when we began this study, all of this can be seen, and I would argue, I would urge all of us to see all of this um, as a direct challenge to our natural tendency toward in-group bias that we talked about several weeks ago, right? This counter-narrative, that is, this counter-narrative that begins to emerge within this story offers us a direct challenge or confrontation to our in-group bias, right? Like, so, okay, let's fast forward now to us here and now. As Christians, we see, and I would argue rightly so, we've been taught to see um, that we ourselves are heirs of the Abraham Covenant through Isaac and then through Jacob and eventually, of course, through Jesus Christ. And so on the surface, Sarah and Isaac are our in-group. They are our group. Those are our people. Those are our spiritual descendants, Sarah and Isaac, right? We, 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 have been, we understand that we are heirs of the Abraham Covenant through Christ. And yet which would imply that Hagar and Ishmael right? they are our outgroup. that's not our people Sarah and Isaac those are our people and yet this story is told in such a way and I've just taken about 20 minutes to try to emphasize these aspects of the story which are far too easy for us to miss precisely because of our in group in group bias Siri's having trouble hearing me can you believe that uh, so this story is told in such a way as to challenge and confront that in-group bias that we would naturally approach the story with. Our group is good, the other group is bad, right? And yet, again and again and again, that presumption is rebuffed by the counter-narrative. Maybe your group ain't so good. You see how awful Sarah carried herself? Maybe your out-group isn't so bad. You see how sweet Ishmael is? He was trying to celebrate with his younger half-brother Isaac at the weaning party. Right? See what I'm saying? This story, this counter-narrative is told in a way just to <laughs> confront, 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 challenge, correct. Right? And again and again and again, we are drawn in to the hearts and minds of the outgroup, Hagar, Ishmael, suffering in the desert. We hear their cry. We feel their pain. I mean, just in thinking about this, you know, I've got, I've got a son right now who would have been about Ishmael's age. When Sarah sent Hagar away for the second time, about, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And to think of him getting out there and after being out there in the desert and, you know, for ever such and such a time. Starving, parched with thirst to the point that his mother had to take him and just lay him down under a bush to give him a little bit of shade while he dies. I mean, the story is told in a way to draw in our sympathies and our affection to these two. And it's on purpose. The biblical writers told the story in this way intentionally, so they broke with their norms. They don't normally give us that kind of heartfelt, heart-wrenching. That's not the kind of prose that you find in the book of Genesis. And yet, here it is. Our sympathies are drawn in. We feel their heartbreak. We feel with them and for them. Can you imagine why that might be? It's because God feels their heartbreak. It's because God's love is with them and upon them. That's why this is evident in the story. And so this counter-narrative that begins to emerge, doesn't just begin to emerge, it just, it just glares at you once you look at it like this. And there's much more. I'm giving you the redneck cliff notes of the version. If you want the deeper, richer, you know, by the book, um, For sure. I hope I've said that lots of times during this study, but anyway, I'm saying it now. Um, So this counter-narrative, it's just there. It's unavoidably, unavoidably there. Um, And I want you to know, just so you know, that we're not alone in seeing these aspects of this narrative, that we're not out on our own, we're not out on a limb in reading the story in this way. There is great historical evidence that other observers of scripture and thinkers of the biblical texts um, have seen this counter narrative in the story uh, before us, before we came along. In the history of Judaism, after the close of the biblical canon, the practice of, you know, doing theology, thinking thinking God. Passed from the prophets to the sages, to the older rabbis, and to a practice that Jewish people refer to as midrash. And I mean, I guess the closest, the close. It's probably not even a good (coughs) analogy, but midrash is a tradition in Judaism where where rabbis and sages and um, interact with the biblical text, interpret the Bible, and interpret the nature and personality of God, and and write their thoughts. And so these writings, midrash writings, um, it's it wouldn't be completely accurate to say that they're held in the same, with the same reverence as the canon, the scriptural canon itself. That's not true. But it's a very valuable and important aspect of Jewish tradition. And there's great evidence in the body of work referred to as Jewish midrash um, that this Hagar Ishmael's story has been interpreted along these lines by various rabbis for generations. One of the interesting aspects, and we're going to read kind of the punchline from one of these uh, old Jewish sages in just a moment, but I've got to set up the context. There are several loose ends in the story that led the sages to a to a, uh, an explosive conclusion that we're going to get to in just a moment. But first. I want to give you the three loose ends that are hanging in the story as it's read that, that gives some perplexing questions just as they stand on their own. Um, and the first one is this. Look at this, Genesis chapter 25. This is a mention of Abraham's burial. Abraham has now lived his entire life, and he's buried. And here's the reference to it in Genesis 25. Abraham breathed his last. And died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life. He was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre. Wait, somebody tap the brakes here just a little bit, would you please? What in the world is Ishmael doing there at his father's burial? The last we heard of Ishmael in the story is when he's about to die in the desert and the angel of the Lord appears and uh, provides him with a well of water. He's refreshed and revived, and it says that God was with him, and he grew, lived in the the desert, and he became an archer. That's it. Years go by. The mention of Abraham's burial includes Ishmael. I mean, get the picture. Isaac and Ishmael bury their father in a cave, and there they are standing shoulder to shoulder. Maybe they're even standing arm in arm, telling stories about Father Abraham. Maybe they say a prayer. Maybe they shed a tear together. Isaac and Ishmael at Abraham's funeral together as half-brothers. What is going on? How did this happen? Did, did Isaac just send him a text and say, Hey, bro, dad died. You better come and help me open this cave up. No, that probably didn't happen, just to say. How did it happen? How did it happen that Ishmael it's like right like I'm saying it that way because you know the story the story after after the dramatic climactic moment in the Hagar Ishmael story, the biblical narrative focuses at that point, from that point on, the biblical narrative there focuses on the Abraham, Sarah, Isaac part of their family. That's that's the focus that you get for I don't know, depending on how you want to count the chapters, six chapters, seven chapters. It's just Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah. And then Abraham dies. And there's Ishmael. How did that happen? What's going on there? Then there's a third, a second loose end. And this is we're backing up in years into Abraham's life. We're backing up some years from Abraham's death uh, to the passing of Sarah. Okay, so in the story of Abraham, Sarah dies. Abraham sends his servant uh, to go back to Abraham's homeland to find a wife for Isaac and bring a wife back. Um, uh, The servant does indeed bring a wife back for Isaac. Abraham has a share in the promised land because he, he got a little plot of land to bury Sarah. Uh, so it would seem that everything is clicking now, or everything has clicked for Abraham, right? God promised him that he would be a father of many nations. He has a son. His son has a wife. They're poised to continue, you know, with posterity. God promised Abraham a land. He's got a down posit on the land, right, the little piece, that he, uh, piece of land that he got through various areas. It seems as if we can now close the book on Abraham from a narrative perspective, at least, and move on to the next chapter. And just at that moment... The biblical story gives us an out-of-nowhere twist in the story. Genesis 25. This is right after Sarah's passing. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron and Jokshan and Midan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Didan were Ashuram and Letushim, that's hard to pronounce, and L-m-m-m-m-m-m-m-m. The sons of Midian were Epha and Ephor and Hanak and Abida and Elda. All these were sons of Keturah. What in the world is going on here? Who is this? Are you trying to tell me that after, you know, God gave Abraham this promise that he would be the father of many nations and years go by before he has any children whatsoever? The the whole thing with Sarah's idea for a surrogate mother uh, brings about Ishmael. And then even years after that, some 12, 13, 14 years after that, finally, Abraham has a child with Sarah. And then so after all of that difficulty, let's just say, with fertility, you know, Sarah dies Abraham marries someone named Keturah, and boom, all these sons, and presumably daughters. um, What is this about? Who is Keturah? Where does this come from? Why don't we know anything about her? We hear no mention of any Keturah prior to this reference, and we hear no mention of any Keturah after this reference. What is going on with Keturah? Who is she, and what is she doing In the story it is at least a tantalizing question and we need to recognize that the biblical writers don't just give us raw facts without any meaning this is not when you read when you read the bible in general certainly when you read the book of genesis you're not just reading bare facts you're reading memory this is these are the stories that create the identity of the jewish people it's memory it's identity it's theological memory there are no wasted words in this narrative The narrative doesn't give us directly the significance of Keturah, but you can be sure this is not being told to us just because it happened. This is not like reading a newspaper. You're reading an identity-forming narrative. So who is Keturah? What is the significance? The third loose end in the story. This mention of this place, Ber-Lahai-Roi. It occurs three times in the narrative. When Abraham's servant returns to Abraham with a wife for Isaac, there's a curious mention that really could escape notice, again, on that first surface-level reading. It says in that context when the servant returns that Isaac had come from going to 'er Be'er-Lahai-Roi, for he, Isaac, was living in the Negev. Just kind of just reference that. Isaac is coming from ber Lahai roi to meet Rachel. And then, after Abraham's funeral, which we just read a portion of that a moment ago, we see a reference to this place again. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by ber Lahai What is this place, and why does it keep being mentioned, and why is Isaac there? Why is he coming from there when he comes to meet Rachel? And why is he there after before Abraham's funeral? And where, when is this place first mentioned? Well, if you keep going back in the story, you find shockingly, surprisingly, the first mention of it in Genesis chapter 16. This is at the first fleeing into the desert of Hagar. And God meets her there uh, and, and tells her to go back to Sarah, and that she's going to have a son, Ishmael, and so on. It says in that account that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, I have even remained alive after seeing him. Therefore, the well was called Ber-Lahai-Roi. And behold, it's even still there to this day, say the biblical writers. It's between Kadesh and Bered. Simply put, and here's what the rabbis said when they put together this clue, that Ber-Lahai-Roi is the place of Hagar. It's Hagar's hometown. So here's what the rabbis said about this. Back to the reference that Isaac is coming from Ber-Lahai-Roi whenever Abraham's servant brings the wife for Isaac. It says this, putting together the backstory now on seeing that his father had sent to fetch him a wife, Isaac that is, Isaac said, "Can I live with her while my father lives alone? No, I will go and return Hagar to him." So why is Isaac coming from Beer Lahairoeh because he went on a mission to restore the relationship between Hagar and Abraham. That's what the rabbis said. All of this is Isaac's mission to reunite Hagar with Abraham. They took one more giant leap in following this interpretive theory. Who then was Keturah? That was Hagar, Hagar herself. One of the the, uh, characteristics of Midrash in biblical interpretation among the rabbis was to identify unknown characters with known characters from elsewhere in the narrative, and there's lots of examples of that. Well, the rabbis said, but here... This is a reference to Hagar. She's now called Keturah. The word Keturah means fragrance because, said the rabbis, her acts were as fragrant as incense. Does <laughs> that blow your mind? Isn't that cool, though? I mean, what a beautiful thought. So why is it that Ishmael and uh, Isaac are standing there? I'm going I'm to say arm-in-arm because arm I you know, that's why they, they were standing there arm-in-arm arm at their dad's funeral. Why? Because after Sarah died... Isaac had gone on a mission to retrieve Hagar and bring her back to Abraham. And, not, and with her comes Ishmael. And so their family was restored after Sarah's death. For as long as Sarah lived, Isaac and Abraham respected her wish that Hagar be sent away. Out of respect for her, they respected her wish. As soon as she died, boom, we're bringing them back together. Come on, somebody. Isn't that beautiful? I told you this is a, this is a, a, a search for a better, richer story and if you want it here it is for you right here we're not thinking original thoughts here we're thinking the thoughts after the ancient rabbis and i'm telling you i think what they came up with is beautiful but at a minimum even if you don't want this narrative let me just stress this what does this midrash tell us about how the rabbis read the story as it stood well at a minimum we could say this it tells us that the rabbis felt like there was something morally wrong with the story as it stood, all in the world Hagar ever did was obey her mistress, and for that she was shunned. She was run away, at the edge of death. But for the intervention of God, she and Ishmael would have died. That, for in order for all she ever did was obey her mistress, and that was the consequence as the story stood. And so the rabbis, it just didn't sit with them, and so they give us this further beautiful. Reading And so now, after Sarah's death, Isaac takes action to make things right with both Hagar and his half-brother, Ishmael, and they restore their family. I want to read you another uh, more lengthy midrash around this story, um, and this is a creative um, insertion into the Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael narrative that would occur sometime during Abraham's lifetime, uh, perhaps before Sarah's death, perhaps afterwards, not exactly sure. But here's the story as told by one of the rabbis. And as I tell this story, I just want you to think of the, in particular, think of the emotional impact of this scene. Think of the psychological impact, let alone the theological, and I'll have some things to say about that in just a moment. But just think of the emotional impact of this, the psychological impact of this um, uh, in terms of spiritual formation. Just imagine if you had grown up with this story in your heart and mind. Ishmael lived in the desert of Paran, that's from Genesis 21. Ishmael sent for and married a woman named Aisha from the plains of Moab. Three years later, Abraham went to see his son, Ishmael. He arrived at midday and found his wife at home. Where is Ishmael, he asked. He's gone to fetch dates from the desert, she replied. Give me a little bread and water, he asked. I have none, she replied. He said to her, when Ishmael comes, tell him that an old man from the land of Canaan came to see him. And said, the threshold of the house is not good. When Ishmael returned, his wife told him this, and he divorced her. Wow. His mother then sent to the father's house and took for him a wife named Fatima. Three years later, Abraham again went to see his son. He arrived at midday And found Ishmael's wife at home. Give me a little bread and a little water, for my soul is weary from the road, he asked. She took out bread and water and gave them to him. Abraham stood and prayed before the Holy One, blessed be he, and Ishmael's house became filled with all good things. When Ishmael came, his wife told him about it, and Ishmael knew that his father still loved him. Isn't that a beautiful story? Because, you know, you think about it and, you know, just try to put your feet in Ishmael's sandals. You know, he was, whatever, 10, 11, 12 years old when he and his mom were sent away. He was too young to understand all the aspects of competition and rivalry and jealousy and the things that drive the story. And so he must have been left with that question in his mind. Does my father love me? Who am I? Who is who is my father, right? And so this precious Rabbi, and I can't, make to, can't wait to meet him someday. He tells this story to fill in all those questions. Oh yeah. Ishmael knew that his dad loved him because he came, he went to his house and he left that coded message. And when, when Abraham found that Ishmael had chosen a wife who didn't show hospitality to strangers, Abraham left a coded message for his son Ishmael to say, ah, this isn't the right one for you. And so Ishmael takes a new wife and this time it's a wife who shows hospitality to strangers. And so Father Abraham fills the house with good things. And Ishmael knows that his father loved him. What an incredible rewriting of this story. Everybody, just to kind of bring all this together, and I think you understand what we're saying here. But the bottom line is, while it's unavoidably true, that Isaac was chosen for a unique responsibility of carrying forward the Abraham covenant. And we'll have much more to say that about that in weeks to come. That's certainly true. But it's also critically important for us to see and to know and to be reminded again and again and again that Ishmael is not rejected, not by God, and not by his father, Abraham. The very idea, while we're on the subject, the very idea... That the one true God might be in the business of choosing some and rejecting others actually has no basis. It, it, it represents a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of God. As if the love of God or the grace of God operates on the scarcity principles of our world. The scarcity principles of our world say, you know, if I give some of my resources to you, then I'm now depleted by that amount of resources and I don't have that to give to someone else. It doesn't work that way in the economy of God. The economy of God is one of superabounding love. The Scripture says that He has mercy on all of His works. That's the nature of God. When you're talking about the nature of the one true God, you're talking about grace that is not finite. It's not limited in the way that our human understanding uh, insists upon. It's not as if the love of God is limited in its capacity. His His love is. Uh, 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 boundless in that sense. He has mercy upon. Psalm 145 says this, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Is everybody tracking? So here's what I want to say. I just want to say this one thing, and we'll be done for today. Um, it's like like the way, here's kind of my just my thoughts on this. Okay, if you can imagine, I don't know. What the analogy might be but there is in our world a what we could call a sociological perspective that remains very much to this day this rivalrous competitive dynamic among let's just say flat out we all know what we're talking about this conflict between muslims and christians continues to this day Uh, jewish people are in the mix as well of course This conflict it's going on right now on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. If you haven't paid attention to what's going on in DC with the conflict in Israel and the way our politicians here in America are taking sides on it, okay. There's a sociological, psychological dynamic that you can hear and see and read in the newspaper, on Twitter, whatever, right? And just beneath that sociological and psychological field, just beneath that, is a certain spirituality. It's a spirituality that carries certain biases and assumptions. Namely, I would say the toxic version of that spirituality would be this very notion that God has accepted some and has rejected others. That's a piece that's in the mix for some. And that spirituality feeds the sociology, right? So, so that basic idea that, that God, whoever, whatever, wherever God is, depending, depending on who you ask, right, my image of God is in the business of accepting some and rejecting others. And that toxic spirituality bubbles up into a sociology and a psychology that carries that accepting and rejecting notion forward, right? That's, well, okay, so you get that idea. Well, beneath, beneath the spirituality is what we could call the theological layer. And here I mean the theological layer that interacts with the text of the Bible itself and forms its notions, its views of what God is like. So... So you've got at least these three layers that's at work all the time. And even if, even if one's theology is atheism, that's still a theology. It bubbles up into a spirituality, and that bubbles up into a sociology perspective on humanity and how it is that humanity would appropriately interact with one another, right? So it's at least those three layers. There's a theological layer, and then that emerges into a spirituality, for better or for worse, and that emerges into, in, into a sociological perspective on how we relate to one another, for better or for worse, okay? To the extent, and again, now I'm going to narrow to Christians in particular and really our sub-tribe of Christianity. I'm talking about evangelicals. To the extent that someone in our tribe, evangelical Christians, would would possess that kind of we're chosen and they're rejected version of sociology, political rhetoric, tweets, whatever to the extent that it, that one of one among us would carry that kind of sociology that kind of psychosocial dynamic it has been fed by a spirituality which was in t- which was in turn fed by a particular reading of the text i said all that to say that so what i want to ask you to do and you on facebook land what so what i want to ask you to do is trust the process if if you are i would say courageous enough to recognize that maybe just maybe you have either now or in the past held some of those biases right like like we're the people of isaac and those other people are the people of ishmael they're the outs and we're the in right like if you sense that yeah okay maybe there's some of that that's in me well That happened because you or somebody for you interpreted the text in a certain way that bubbled up into a spirituality, that bubbled up into a particular sociological, psychological. So what I'm asking you to do is trust the process because what we're doing here over the next few weeks is we're going to rework this bottom layer, and we're going to expect and pray that that process of trickle-up is going to happen again, but this time result in a spirituality and in turn a sociology and a psychology and a treating of other human beings in a way that is humane. You see what I'm saying? So trust the process, would you with me? Just trust the process because this is the first of several of these narratives that we're going to go back through. Next week we're going to look at um, uh, Jacob and Esau, and then we go from there, look at Joseph and his brothers. We're going to look at Rachel and Leah. All of these are these rivalrous stories, and they all contain... The same dynamic of a narrative on the surface and then a richer, better, more beautiful counter-narrative just beneath, okay? So that's where we're at. All right, let's pray.